Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and we have a special holiday season edition of On Tap, special for reasons that will be made clear presently. As always, I am joined by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Uh, Sarah, from your Instagram feed, it seems like you're enjoying a picture-perfect Maine winter dusting of snow on the ground, stark, beautiful, silent outside. Uh, what is your life really like? Well, that, that is the view from my, uh, from my office, which I have not left and probably will not leave for the next six, seven days until all of the grading is done. So as the snow piles, so do the final end-of-term assignments and everything. So I'm digging my way out of both at the moment. And uh, Sarah and I are joined um, in this edition while Harvey Young is taking a month away to reorganize his life, move to a new city, start a new job. We are joined by my colleague at Washington University, Paige McGinley. Paige, hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm delighted to be on the podcast. How are things going in your office down the hall for me? Uh, the weather down here is, uh, I imagine, very much the same as the weather in your office. So far, there are not any student rehearsals happening outside the door. I hope that will continue for the duration of our recording. Indeed, that would be the true holiday spirit of things. Today on the podcast, we have three topics. We are going to talk about conservative theater. We read an article in American Theater Magazine by Simi Horwitz called Interstage Right, which is about the phenomenon of explicitly politically conservative theater. We are going to talk about Kate Ellswit's book, Theater and Dance. We're going to talk about the relationship between theater and dance institutionally, formally, in the ways that she has outlined in that exciting book. And we're going to talk about Bronx Gothic, a work of performance by Okwi Okpokwasili, a New York-based performance artist, dancer, monologist. We all watched this on ontheboards.tv, so... In addition to talking about the work itself, uh, we may have a chance to air out all of our prejudices about live performance versus mediatized and streamed performances. Before we get to those topics, um, just a couple of news items. It has not been very long since we recorded last, but I wanted to mention that there's a new MA degree program being offered through a collaboration between the Live Art Development Agency and Queen Mary University of London. We'll put the link on the website, but this seems like a really exciting new graduate degree that explicitly addresses itself to live art. Other things in the news there are reports as of our recording that taxation of graduate student tuition assistance is not going to be in the final tax bill that appears to be moving its way swiftly towards passage in the House and the Senate. There was a report on the Chronicle of Higher Education that said that a source that knew the final bill said that graduate student taxation would not be in there and that, quote unquote, 
graduate students will be pleased. <laughs> um, I guess pleased not to have this terrible punitive taxation policy enacted upon them. But that's not confirmed, but it would be a sigh of relief for um, uh, those of us who work with, with graduate students. Though there are other elements of that tax bill that I think will make differences in the lives of people who work at universities. So with that, why don't we move on to our first topic, conservative theater. Um, We read this article by Simi Horwitz, and it's in the series um, that American Theater Magazine has been publishing for the last year called Theater in the Age of Trump. Sarah, do you want to sort of lead us through your thinking or your reactions to this article and the cluster of issues that it engages with? I was attracted to this for a couple of reasons. One, I you know, it's 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 not something I know very much about. I was sort of intrigued by the central premise, which is that most theater is is liberal and left leaning and explicitly left wing, which is a a kind of central premise that I'm I'm not sure that I totally agree with. But I was sort of intrigued by how that might play out. Right, this idea that theater is there's something inherently lefty uh, uh, and and or progressive about theater. So I was sort of interested in that. Um, And the other is that this is coming up for me in the context of a lot of ongoing conversations on college campuses about what we teach and to whom and for whom and representation and diversity and inclusion. And it it seemed to me, you know, I teach at a small uh, liberal arts elite New England college where I think by and large we are probably more progressive as a as a unified body than many other parts of the country. But, you know, as the 2016 election and its aftermath kind of showed, like we're not an ex- this is not a a uniform political identity either among the student body or among the faculty. And so part of me was thinking like, look, I'm sure that a lot of the, my students who self-select into my classes do so with with certain fairly predictable political ideologies that are probably similar to mine. And I imagine that when I walk into a classroom, a lot of the students presume that they know what my political affiliations are. And they're probably, I would say, you know, anywhere from, you know, 70 to 90 percent correct. But I don't think that that's everybody who's in my classroom. And if I really am embracing this policy of of true diversity and inclusion that would account for and make room for every voice, including those with whom I disagree, then it seemed to me that I needed to think in a more thorough and rigorous way about what are the political ideologies of the of the representation in the materials. So that's that was sort of, that was the root of my interest in it. And the article itself gives kind of a nice summary of a few different key points. Um, one of them is uh, a couple of festivals: the Republican Theater Festival uh, that started in Philadelphia uh, in 2012, and an ongoing conservative theater festival which was started by Robert Cooperman at Ohio University, and that has a, a, a pretty robust web, web presence. So you can see some YouTube videos from rehearsals um, and plays from both of these, as well as the conservative festival has a website including a, a what is conservative theater that kind of lays out the basic premise. So I, I found it really compelling. I don't know if I've had any ideas. Paige, very nice to have another female voice on the on the podcast. What were, how did you react to this? Well, one of the, uh, like you, Sarah, I, I questioned the premise uh, of the piece that theater is by definition liberal, left-leaning, progressive, and I think it might be a good thing for us to disentangle those words just as we disentangle words like conservative, Republican, right wing uh, in this conversation. Uh, But, you know, there's lots of conservative 
little c conservative theater out there that we are constantly teaching uh, in our courses and producing uh, on our stages. So, um, you know, Oklahoma, Miss Julie, depending on how you direct it, A Doll's House, which was understood as shockingly uh, liberal in its time, but uh, Lee Brewer's production of it, which I loved in every other way, the final moment is this sort of spotlight on the children, right? As if, and and completely uh, undermines Nora's departure from the house, right? So so when when we talk about what is liberal and what is conservative, I mean, we're thinking about texts, but we're also thinking about production. And so I I think this is happening all the time. Um, But for me, the question that really uh, was prompted is, is there a difference between what we're teaching and how we teach it versus what we're producing or the kind of creative work we're encouraging students to do? So how do these questions about right-leaning viewpoints, left-leaning viewpoints uh, resonate when we're talking about situating something historically versus doing it now? And what does it mean to do this now here at this university? I think the article sort of makes the point that David Mamet, who he is one of the most successful contemporary playwrights in America, there's not the 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 sense or the perception that there's a liberal bias in the world of theater. You can't really sustain it on the basis of what plays are being performed overall. But I think you can sustain it or you can understand where that perception comes from if you think about the theater makers in your life and the other theater academics and professors that you know. I I think, in my experience at least, as the article says, something like 90 to 95 percent of people would share a kind of basic mainstream liberal view of the world. So I guess people like Robert Cooperman, who feel, you know, sort of alienated or alone, or that there's a need for theater that that communicates a different political viewpoint are reacting, not to what is staged in general, but to the ideological presuppositions that they think most of their colleagues in the theater world share. So the Conservative Theater Festival actually has has a website called Right Theatrics Inc. And on that page, there is a what is conservative theater you know, the, the the website is actually quite clear in trying to present a certain kind of, you know, like one of the things is what is conservative theater, right? It, it, it promotes the following belief. So it's actually, it's not just a, a kind of hanging on to tradition or a, a adherence to certain aesthetic values. It's actually about promoting certain political ideas like, you know, the belief in the existence of evil. I, I mean, I actually think theater history would be really limited if we got rid of everything that didn't account for the existence of evil. So I don't necessarily know that that makes it an inherently conservative project. But oh, that is really surprising. I mean, that sounds like it, you know, the, the American Theater article gets into this a little bit in the later sections that it, there's a point of connection here with religious points of view, right? Sure. So to me, if you if you asked me to name like the 10 most common conservative viewpoints, I don't think I would get around to the existence of evil. <laughs> well, I'm sort of curious. So here's what what would you imagine? So so I this was not what I was expecting when I saw what is conservative theater. What what else would you expect? So I've told you one conservative theater promotes the following beliefs. One is the existence of evil. Um, Let me guess. What are I some other ones? The respect for Western civilization. Something along those lines. Yes, uh, yes, even more specific. So that that manifests in a couple of different ways. It's much more specific to the United States. The United States federal government should follow the true law of the land, the Constitution. <laughs> well, this is nuts. I mean, this is, I, 
I'm much more sympathetic to the idea that there should be ideological diversity and openness in the way we teach theater and our students and that conservatives shouldn't be demonized. But the idea of promoting the creation of artwork that says that the you know the United States government should follow the Constitution or whatever that's that's a highly uh, specific and sort of propagandistic proposition. I mean, the, I think theater is partly interesting, and a lot of artwork is interesting because it allows you to go beyond dogmatic views and consider the multiplicities and complexities of the lived experience. Okay, but but here's the interesting thing about this. I mean, so the other thing that's on this list is um, the existence of human nature, the ex- exceptionalism of the United States, the existence of a higher being. This is um, crazy. <laughs> the free market is the economic system most likely to promote fairness and equality. What, but what's really interesting um, for me is that there is a distinction made here between like a cons- theater that promotes a conservative ideology and theater that is conservative because it is for profit. And so the what the website actually says is, in fact, conservative theater hopes to thrive in more intimate theater spaces where ideas are given emphasis over spectacle and star quality. In that regard, we are no different than groundbreaking theater practitioners such as Artaud and Brecht, albeit from a decidedly different political point of view. Now, first of all, I would say like, oh, you should really read Kimberly Janarone's book, Artaud and His Doubles, because like, actually, there you will there you will find a wonderful kind of rewrapping of Artaud from the conservative to the liberal and back to the conservative again, which I think is kind of interesting. But also, you know, a lot of Marxist theater, uh, certainly some of, you know, Brecht's more political and polemical work, I mean, could follow the same criticism that you just had panel of like, I think theater should be open to diversity and not promoting like single single viewpoints. And so in that sense, I think there's a really interesting, I, I think there's a really interesting discussion here. Yeah, well, what's interesting to me about about the website and and these uh, these dogmatic uh, we might say points uh, that need to be hit or these sort of you know conservative marks that need to be hit by the plays that would be considered appropriate for the conservative theater festival is that there's a kind of formal confusion here that I'm finding really interesting and wanting to talk about more which is it's this sort of ideology of agitprop, but married to the realistic form, right? So from what I could tell, most of the plays that were being described in this article um, are, are, are basically straight ahead realism, right? And so, of course, that brings to mind um, all kinds of um, scholars who have, you know, sort of plumbed the political potential and, and, and failure of, of realism in all sorts of ways from Ellen Diamond to Brecht and, or Ellen Diamond building on Brecht uh, and, and other folks as well. And so um, to me, I think where this becomes a kind of interesting place to go with students, right, is that what makes something conservative? Is it is it a question of content, right? This is a play about a baker who will not bake cakes for a gay couple, or is there uh, are there formal properties, right, inherent to the conservative theater as it's being envisioned by these contemporary playwrights? I think the form of theater is an interesting place to pick up. I think theater is formally set up to focalize sympathy. I think that acting also highlights the constructedness of certain social positions so that you see how a person can step into 
the body of someone who might do their gender differently or maybe from another part of the world or class position. And so for those reasons, it lends itself to um, an openness to other people that's you know, fundamentally liberal and fundamentally liberatory. If it's true, and I suspect it is, that the vast majority of people who participate in theater arts are of a, you know, leftist or liberal disposition, that it's because it attracts people who are open-minded and who aren't willing to demonize other people. You're very sensibly Uh, not quibbling with the premise of the article. I I suppose not. I, I think, to me... It, it rings true. Part of the reason is, and I don't know if either of you were there for this, there was an ATHA several years ago where there was a plenary session or maybe a sort of state of the profession type session. And during the Q&A, um, a, a, a man stood up and he said, hey, I just want to say to everyone that I'm you know, a theater professor and I'm a Republican. And if you want to talk to me, I'll be outside. And he matched the physical description of Robert Cooperman. I wonder if it was him. Um, and whether or not it was him, I think it is you know, intuitively true that if you're a person with extremely conservative views and you work in our profession, you're going to feel pretty lonely. I can totally appreciate that and, and sympathize with that feeling. I think that if, I mean, should we be encouraging monolithic you know, points of view or singular readings of texts in our classrooms. No, I mean, that's not um, what the, um, you know, the mission of higher education is. I do think we have to be really careful uh, with language that starts to think about conservative viewpoints or liberal viewpoints uh, as a protected class. And once we start getting into at some point, Cooperman says he looks forward to the day when conservative views have a place at the, at the theater table alongside LGBTQ Latino women's and whoever else wants to be there. And I mean, I, th- I think that, and, and this is across higher education where you see this sort of advocacy for um, the creation of, of professorships for people with explicitly conservative or right-leaning viewpoints. Um, not to say that those viewpoints aren't welcome or encouraged in a respectful dialogue at the university, but we have to think very carefully about expanding uh, protected class, you know, non-discriminatory status to viewpoints which for everyone can and should change over a lifetime, right? I mean, that's also part of what's at stake here is that these are qualities um, that in thoughtful people, points of view that may change. Well, and I, th- I mean, I think the other, the other part of this is if, is that if 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 part of what defines uh, the left wing viewpoint, but if one of the things that we sort of identify as being, like in answer to panel, like why why there are so many queer people in in theater, why there why it, tr- it tends left, if part of that is a progressive openness, and an inclusivity, right? I mean, I think we can point to a lot of by definition uh, conservative viewpoints and communities, including this list of what is conservative theater that are by definition exclusionary. And so I, you know, at, at, even as I sort of think about, okay, so if I have, you know, conservatives in my theater class, you know, how do I make sure that I use like language that is not demonizing of any student viewpoint? Uh, at the same time, and I think this is kind of what you're pointing to, Paige, I 
there's no way I'm going to compromise my sense of inclusion and my outreach. I will not tolerate the intolerant. It's a conversation that should go on, but we have other exciting topics to to move to. So we read um, Kate Ellswit's book, Theater and Dance, or maybe I should say Theater Ampersand Dance, because she definitely riffs on the ampersand and the entanglement that it um, signifies. We've read another book from this series, um, Nick Rideout's Theater and Ethics, and these are great books, short, you know, sort of focused essays on a specific topic. Just to get us going, I will give a little bit of, of summary. So Kate, who is a scholar of dance and has spent her career in theater departments like a lot of dance scholars do, highlights the interdependency between theater and dance. And so she is accentuating the way that it's very difficult to disentangle the two art forms. There's a chapter on history in which she looks at individual collaborative relationships that span theater and dance, many from the modernist tradition. There's a chapter on form where she discusses the expansiveness of concepts of theater as a form or dance as a form that allow richer critical discussion of performances that incorporate both or that can't be put into a sort of either or status. And then a final chapter on methods. Each of these chapters is punctuated with an interlude that looks at a a work of contemporary performance where dance and theater are fused in interesting ways. I had, you know, I I thought the book was excellent. She's an excellent writer. She brings so much information and evidence into this question. She looks historically, but also formally at the two forms. And I have reactions, but rather than jumping right into that, I thought I'd open up a question to the two of you, which is in your experience, your career experience, your training experience, have there been moments when you found yourself puzzling over the institutional separation of or cohabitation between theater and dance? Well, my my experience with this, uh, I think, is quite unusual. And I didn't realize it was unusual until um, quite far in, you know, along in my graduate career. But um, my undergraduate uh, department, my alma mater, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. We were a department of theater and dance, like many departments. Uh, but the uh, curricular structure for undergraduates was um, a single major, theater and dance. And one could concentrate in one of those uh, or the other, um, but everyone was a theater and dance major. The um, history sequence was a team-taught two-semester sequence, um, a team taught by a theater historian and a dance historian. Um, so we all took those classes together, uh, which resulted, of course, in, in friendships and, and social relationships being built. And then when it came time to perform in each other's senior projects, a lot of cross-fertilization between the theater students and the dance students. One had to take a, a pretty high number of upper-level electives in the other one, <laughs> whether that be theater or dance. Um, and so for me, this this was the way it was uh, as an undergraduate, not knowing that it was any different anywhere else. And so I love Kate's book in part because um, reading it gave me a great sense of um, familiarity. It brought back, uh, you know, so much kind of questions of cross-fertilization between theater and dance historically and in contemporary work, but it completely shaped my own development as a scholar, the kind of performance I'm interested in in, in watching and making, uh, and it was not until many, many years later that I realized that this is a quite unique uh, situation, uh, and so uh, 
my my point of view on this is is maybe a little bit different from from others. Yeah, Sarah, what about you? Well, I've I've been I'm now in a in a in and in chair of a department of theater and dance, and and we recently created a major, not so different uh, than what Paige is describing. Um, although we struggled with the name, so we actually we have a major, and no one really knows what it means or or can remember it properly either. But in performance arts, in which you concentrate in theater or dance or interdisciplinary performance, but there's a certain amount of courses that combine content and our cross-listed theater and dance. And it doesn't sound like we are yet at the level of integration that you're describing, Paige, but I'm taking notes. I love the idea of having a dance, uh, doing a team taught course between a dance historian and a theater historian. But I am, I mean, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that really stood out in a lot of, in what Kate was writing, is where she talks about how in dance, and when theater and dance live in close proximity to one another, that theater really threatens to overwhelm and to and to sort of loom large over dance. And I, I would say that that's something that I'm constantly trying to battle against in my own bias and inclinations, but also in the, the sort of logocentrism uh, and and textuality of, of theater that can always kind of be pulled out as a, as a tool to align with English departments and, and other academics on campus. So I really see part of my job right now is making intellectual uh, and academic space within the college for my dance colleagues to do what it is that they do rather than try to translate what they do into into forms that are recognizable within print or discursive disciplines. The question of the name of your major, Sarah, brought me uh, to, you know, an interesting point that Ellswit makes in the book and, and that these these institutional questions are often grounded right in the renaming of departments, the naming or renaming or re-renaming um, as we've seen across um, across our field in recent years. And, um, you know, I, I think Ellswit uh, gently urges us to think about what might be lost by collapsing the distinctions between theater and dance, at least as they're uh, understood by, by many of their scholars and practitioners, under a rubric of performance. And I, I paused at that moment and, and then thought quite a lot about it afterwards and, and thought that was a really useful provocation that she's offering us. Yes, I, I wish she had offered it um, before we were doing our major. I, it would have been highly instructive, and, and I probably would have had had at least some conversations differently, if not made some different decisions. That's interesting, because I think so much, at least in the beginning of the book, is emphasizing the overlap, the entanglements, the commonalities, interdependency, etc., so that when she gets to pointing out that there are meaningful distinctions and that something is lost if it all just gets subsumed under performance, I was a bit surprised, partly because one of the things that I kept thinking and reading was that she's so convincing in pointing out how it's not just a modern phenomenon that you see theater and dance merged into the same works. It's not just the sort of Gesamtkunstwerk legacy, but that the founding myths of a lot of theater forms involve dance. She points out the, you know, ancient Greek derivation from the dithyram or the, or the chorus as being a sort of dancing, moving body that's integrally there at the beginning of theater, according to a certain mythology. In kabuki drama, and kabuki drama is not a classical form, but the sort of all the accounts that I've read of its origin involve um, dancing forms being converted or adapted into, you know, sp- spoken narrative. So 
it seems as though theater and dance are kind of one thing. And I began to want to ask, how do we account for the fact that we think of them so separately? Everyone thinks that they know what theater and dance is and what the difference is between them. So why, if the histories have been merged, if the forms can't really be dissociated, why are they thought of as different? And part of, I think, the the answer is that there is there's something productive about distinctions. There's something productive about separating the training. It's exciting and productive, as we see in the, you know, in Brock's Gothic, for example, to have dance and text merged together. But somewhere you need to train dancers to do things that they can only do if they're dedicating so much of their time and energy to the movement of the body and the awareness of the body in time and space that they would lose something if they were also spending their time in acting classes, right? I'm not I'm not sure I totally I totally buy that. I'd be curious to hear Paige's reaction. I mean, because really what you're the argument you're making panel is really one for the separation in the conservatory model, right? That there's a certain kind mm-hmm. of training and expertise that has to get built up. And one of the things that I think is really enjoyable about my situation and and what what Paige is describing from Trinity is the is the theater and dance in a liberal arts model where some of those distinctions can be meaningful but not permanently so yeah I take that point entirely well I I, I would I would very much agree with what Sarah has to say here and, and that these questions of, of craft and technique you know are um, it's not that they have no place in the liberal arts setting, of course not, um, you know, and we see our colleagues, um, you know, regularly instructing students um, with, with great skill in those areas. But one of the things that I'm hearing with the, with the three of us talking is, you know, this great interest in the institutional formations of theater and dance, right? And that's uh, perhaps the book that we want to read or the aspect of the book that's most interesting for us, uh, but this book is not written for us, I think. This is, uh, although I do recommend if you're a part of a theater and dance department and you have an annual retreat, I think everyone should buy this book and read it and talk about it together. But I, I see it as really being directed towards students who are beginning to find their way, perhaps in departments that are theater and dance, um, or in training programs that embrace both to a certain degree, and offering them ways, both with historical work and contemporary performance, to think about the ampersand, right, as Ellswit puts it. And so um, while these institutional questions um, have no end of, um, you know, interest for those of us who are um, deep in those institutional settings... Uh, it seems as though she made a choice at a certain point to address them and then move on. I was also really struck at the end, towards the end, she talks about how a theater, a book called Dance and Theater would be very different than a book called Theater and Dance. It was interesting to speculate, because she doesn't say very much more about it than than that. And it's this kind of gesture that comes at the end. It might be interesting, again, to if I were teaching this in a class, which I, I very much expect that I will, to think about, like, so what would, have, what, what would based on what you know, kind of a, a, a book on dance and theater look like and what aspects would that have? Yeah, it made me go back and look at my copy, uh, Nadine George Graves' edited collection, um, which Ellswit refers to in the book and in the very helpful annotated bibliography at the end, and that is Dance and Theater, the Oxford Handbook, yeah, Dance and Theater. Right. And so a comparative project might be in order. There you go. Indeed. So for our third topic today, we all watched Bronx Gothic by... Okui 
Okpukwesili through the ontheboards.tv streaming service. There's so much to talk about here, both in terms of just the merits of the work itself, which are abundant, and also the experience of watching a video recording of a live event through this um, media. Um, Paige, would you start us off just by, I don't know, giving a kind of rough description of the work for people who haven't gotten to see it yet? Sure. Uh, the film that we watched uh, on on the boards TV uh, was Okpokwasili's performance at the Institute of Contemporary Art, uh, Portland Institute of Contemporary Art, uh, in 2014. The film begins uh, while the audience is still entering the theater. Uh, we are in a very intimate space. There is a sort of an installation-like quality to uh, the set design. There are some lamps and turned-over houseplants and Opokwasili herself facing upstage and performing um, some very rapid but very controlled and sort of small range of motion movements to a sort of minimalist score while the audience is coming in and getting seated. And even then, once everybody is seated, continuing for quite a while. And this goes on for about 20 minutes, I would say. You know, it's, it's by turns thrilling and tedious and anxiety provoking. We see the, the, the effort, we see the sweat, um, literally changing the color of her costume and wondering what's going to happen next when this segment of the performance is over. And, and what does then follow is um, a reading of some notes that were passed between two 11-year-old girls in the Bronx. And these are notes about many of the, the questions and concerns of adolescent girls about sex, about boys, about their friendship. And it's tempting to assume that one of the authors of the notes is Opokwasili herself, but and that these are actual documentary artifacts, but that's kind of unclear and made even more slippery as the performance goes on. And, and then that launches us into a kind of encounter with the past that the uh, narrator performer has um, uh, with a Bronx childhood in uh, both sort of documentary terms, but also then breaking into these uh, monologues about lucid dreaming and sung interludes and the choreography that we see at the beginning comes back. You know, eventually there's this sort of revelation at the end. It's just stunning. I guess part of the, part of the pleasure of it is figuring out to what extent this is embellished, imagined, dreamed, to what extent this is confessional and autobiographical. I I received it as being rather truthful to who she was, that she was one of those girls in the exchange of notes, and that what we were seeing on her, on stage is her narrative journey and her sort of autobiographical journey through this moment in her life and what it meant to her afterwards. We should we should distinguish here because they actually there is a documentary film Bronx Gothic that was made about the piece. We we watched the performance documentation or the you know the the filmed version of the live performance, not the documentary, but um, which I have not seen. It actually played here in Portland, and Okwapasili was uh, was here for it, and I totally missed it because I'm an idiot. But um, but I'd be curious if some of that comes out in the conversations, because I, I think the, the film has a number of, of documentary interviews with her. I mean, I, I find it really, the question of what's real and what's not real, less interesting than the 
move between these kind of three modes of presentation, one of which is is dance at, at its most abstract. Um, another is the very literal and textual, right? The, the reading of pieces of paper that have handwritten language on them. And then the absorption of, of text and language and experience into, into dance without the paper, right? So you sort of have these three modes of presentation that she moves among. And watching that in the context of reading Ellswit's book was really, I thought, quite interesting because it, it again brings up this question of like, where does one draw the line between what is textual and non-textual? What is narrative and non-narrative? What is dance in, 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 in an abstract formal sense? When is it imitative? And when is it, we might think of it as illustrating a particular idea. And I think her move between all of those uh, creates an incredibly rich experience that, uh, and here I'll make a small concession to panel who has, it's a very small, very small concession. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, no, really don't get excited. But we have frequently kind of, I think, gone back and forth on different sides of the mediated, you know, live uh, debate. And, you know, I saw um, Ralph Lemon, for example, how can you sit in the house all day and not go anywhere when it was at Seattle on the boards? And then I've watched the, the, the film of that many times. And, you know, I find the film to be very affecting and moving as much as I found the live performance. And this I was expecting to feel similarly, and yet there were many moments where I really wished I, I could have been in, in the audience for this, in part because of how the camera inevitably moves and, and sort of shifts focus to a particular viewpoint, but also because I think there is a, a you know, a, I, I know what it is like to see her dance in person and to be in the same room. And there is a, a presence and a vibrancy to that, that I did not even know, kind of knowing what that feel like, did not experience when I was watching it, you know, on my television at home. So take that for what it's worth. Maybe I've just invalidated my entire, (laughs) my entire, you know, academic career has been, you know, kind of roundly invalidated in one podcast. Let me me say in response that A, I think that's a massive concession and not a minor one. Um, But that it's actually, (laughs) no, but that it's, that I actually, perhaps not surprisingly, was coming around to more what I think would be your point of view on it, which was that the medium succeeds, I think, in giving me a rich and singular experience of what it must have been like in that room and that I was not distracted by the mediatization. There were times when I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. There's like four different cameras. So it's like sitting in four different spots in the house. It's not like being there. There are things that I know that I'm not hearing and perceiving that I would have heard or perceived if I was there, but that the experience of watching it was uh, just gorgeous and gripping and I didn't want to look away and I didn't want to hit pause. It's not that the argument is, is there any value to seeing a live performance taped and and presented through a mediatized instrument? Uh, The argument, I suppose, is, is there anything special or primary or you know, inherently preferable or superior about the live presence at the event. I would rather have been able to see it live, but I sure thought it was awesome to get to experience it the way that we did. Well, I, I appreciate that that our mutual concession session here, uh, <laughs> panel. Happy. And holiday. I'll just say that for folks who don't don't know or haven't kind of explored the the, the archive of ontheboards.tv. Um, I, I think this is an amazing resource uh, and you can 
You can rent individually, you can buy access to some of the videos, um, but you can also, they have institutional subscriptions. And so I've, I, I, Bowdoin has an institutional subscription through our library. And it's a great opportunity, particularly for those of us who are teaching in places that are more geographically limited, you know, in terms of what our students can see and, and what they have access to. And there's now just so many good pieces um, in their collection that it's really, it's really worth your time and attention. I agree. I, I was curious about, uh, because the OnTheBoards.tv films that I've seen before, I think have all been from the Portland Institute for Contemporary Art, but there are also works from PS122, Fusebox Festival, uh, as well as On the Boards in Seattle itself. And also, which I didn't realize until preparing for uh, this podcast, a generous revenue sharing agreement with their artists. So every time one rents uh, and downloads, uh, a, a generous uh, percentage of that uh, goes to the artists themselves, uh, which I was pleased to see. One of the questions that I, I had was the degree to which you you did or didn't see Opokwasili sort of um, challenging her audience, which you know, from from the look of it with this performance was a, a majority white audience in, in this sort of um, uh, this sort of dance of proximity and distance regarding the, this, this sort of representation of black girlhood on stage, right? I mean, which I think in, it, in itself is just extraordinary. This is, uh, we, do, we do not see the, the lives of black girls from the Bronx represented um, with this level of detail and intimacy and that to inhabit a black or brown body is not just to experience pain but also innocence and desire and curiosity uh, and all of these other things but but I found myself uh, sort of oscillating you know in, in terms of identification with these sort of universal questions of adolescence right that are being raised and then and, and sort of jolted out of that by the very particular um, social and economic uh, sort of parameters around what does it mean to grow up black and poor in the Bronx, right? And so I, I wondered if, if you had a sort of similar experience in watching or imagine her to be playing with that line. You know, there was so little context for, I didn't know much about the piece or about um, Okpokwasili before watching this. And in a way, that was a kind of great way to watch it because I didn't have preconceived notions. She is a black woman. That's obvious in the way she is present on stage. And then once you get into the more narrative and textual components of the piece, her experience growing up black and you know is is part of that as well. In other words, some of the racialized language that is in the notes one imagine stands in for a reminder that this is, you know, a particular woman's experience and not universal adolescenthood. I guess the experience that I had in the first 20, 25 minutes when it's just her alone on stage moving was that it, it, it put me in mind a lot of Michael Kirby's category of the of Matrix performance. I just see a person on stage. I don't have a lot of information. There's not a lot changing, but here's a black woman wearing a sort of simple, loose-fitting dress facing away from me and in this environment that doesn't give us a lot of matrix clues about are we inside or outside there's you know plants and grass but there's also lamps you're held in that space for so long that you your brain starts to sort of try to try to make pieces fit and i was like well if she outside if she's outside maybe she's working 
which is already, you know, putting together associations in my mind that I think are frankly racialized. And I had the time to sort of like think, oh, why do I think that she's working if she's outside? But there's also these lamps and the quality of her movement is not a kind of soothing, contented, peaceful movement so that I begin to think, well, if she's inside, then maybe she's in an institution, maybe, you know, and and of course, these are silly ways to try to interpret something as sophisticated as that work. But when you're held in a place for 20, 25 minutes of just watching the same image gradually move and shift a little bit, you have time to watch what your own critical mind is doing to try to make sense out of it. And that was frankly, part of how I experienced the, the racial difference aspect of the piece, which is I was forced to interrogate my own mind's desire to stage her in scenes where I would expect to find a a black woman. That's so interesting. I, maybe because I've seen her before, I've, I, I had no impulse to like narrativize or locate that early piece. I mean, for me, I think one of the things that's really wonderful about this work is, 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 uh, is how feminine it is. And I don't mean that is on a continuum of masculine to feminine. I mean as rooted in female experience and um, an articulation of, of that in in very nuanced and complex ways. You know, it really brought to mind a lot of um, like Robin Bernstein's arguments in Racial Innocence around the construction of black childhood and how uh, you know, and, and the, they, they, I think they just released, there was a new sociological study, um, uh, you know, about how like, you know, girls as, as young as five are no longer seen as being, black girls are as young as five are no longer seen as being children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like that was a really important part that came later on. But that opening, you know, that opening section for me and Ellen, a lot of her her work is all about endurance and physical virtuosity. And I I just like I just watch her with like a, a profound sense of admiration for the ability to do that for as long as she does it, to sustain movement, to sustain certain kinds of movement and gesture, uh, for her you know, physical ability and um and I mean a lot of her work that she's done like with Ralph Lemon and elsewhere has been around these questions of endurance and duration. And so there's a sense of, uh, you know, of just sort of recognition of, you know, something you could do that, uh, you know, she does something for 30 seconds and you're like, hmm. And then when she does it for 30 minutes, you're like, I'm in awe, right? You know, because it's just like, who can do that for 30 minutes, right? And which I thought was really, really, uh, really stunning. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so humbling to be in the presence, the, the virtual presence even of uh, of someone taking herself to the physical and spiritual edge, right? And 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 that was the other thing that I was, I've really just been thinking about so much is um, is the question of spirit and spirituality, and I don't mean religion here, but um, and maybe this gets back to one of the questions I'm left with, which is the question of Gothic. Uh, you know, what is what is Gothic about Bronx Gothic? And to me, I think it it's, I'm coming around to this encounter with spirit, which is also the slipperiness of, of memory, right? Uh, but also the unstable line between, am I awake? and my dreaming, which comes back again and again, which is a line that she repeats throughout. Well, guys, this has been 
delightful. We've run a bit long on some of these discussions, so I think we should go through our drafts with relative alacrity. Sarah, do you want to start us off? Sure. So my draft is actually um, in response to uh, a comment posted on the ONTAP uh, podcast uh, Facebook page asking about, um, in reference to a, a, a news item that I included in our last conversation about the NEH uh, Summer Institute for Digital Technologies and Theater and Performance Studies that I'm co-directing with David Saltz at University of Georgia. And the question, um, which I really appreciate, um, was uh, regarding uh, Philip Auslander as one of the uh, visiting faculty in that in that institute. And Concern, I think, is, um, I mean, people can go and read the actual question, but concern about, you know, his inclusion, given his um, past accusations and acknowledgments of plagiarism around the Critical Theory 4 series um, with Rutledge. And without wanting to delve in and reevaluate or adjudicate that circumstance, I, I wanted to just offer a couple of thoughts um, on behalf of the of the Institute and kind of how we were thinking about this. The the first is is thinking about what would be of most use to the participants in the Institute and thinking particularly around the question of liveness, um, a work that remains incredibly influential and significant in the area of thinking about intermediality and digital media and, and its relation to theater and performance studies. And uh, having the opportunity to engage with Auslander directly seemed of a real benefit to the participants and as part of the Institute. Part of the cr- concern or the critique was that, you know, that this is somehow valorizing of someone who's been found accused of, of past pro- professional misconduct. And I guess I'm not sure that my answer will be satisfying to everyone, but there is a sense in which, uh, you know, certainly participation in the NEH Institute is is a recognition, but it's it's not an award, um, and and a kind of questioning of at what point, you know, does one continue to to make amends or to pay for for mistakes that have been that he may have made in the past? Again, I I think that there reasonable people can disagree on this. Um, we made the decision that um, you know. Things that had happened in the past were unrelated to the work that we were most interested in, that there were acknowledgments, apologies, and consequences related to, to Auslander's past conduct, and that it just it didn't seem like it necessarily would prevent us from engaging with this in, in and among many other faculty, Amy Hughes, Derek Miller, Peter Eckersall. Carrie Miller uh, of Brown, who does really wonderful stuff with music and interfaces, and you know Troika Ranch, and I, I know I'm forgetting some other people off the top of my head. So I wanted to sort of offer that as a as a response. You know, I will say personally, you know, I've had some of my past work plagiarized, and and I've found that to be very difficult and and kind of a painful experience. So it's not a situation that I take lightly. However, in this in this instance, you know, we really felt like there was something valuable to be gained. And and again, I recognize that other people may may disagree, but that's that's the choice we made. So, uh that's my that's my draft for this week. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Uh Paige, do you have a a draft? For well, us? in spite of your request for brevity panel, I'm going to uh <laughs> use my uh, my perhaps one and only appearance on the, the podcast to offer two drafts. Uh, I hope oh. it will not be your only appearance on the, <laughs> it might on be the now. podcast page. <laughs> so um, so the, the first is directly uh, 
related to uh, my star turn today as, as Harvey's understudy. Uh, I have not been training uh, for uh, months to step into the role, but I was reminded of uh, something really interesting that I heard at ASTR in Atlanta, uh, talking with Salisa Koch uh, from the Alliance Theater. Uh, and, and she mentioned that they have recently um, really adjusted uh, their, um, uh, their treatment and training of understudies in Alliance Theater productions, um, in part because of the uh, influx of film and television into um, Atlanta. And so they decided as a theater that they did not um, want any actor to feel like they couldn't step away for two or three days of very highly paid work in film or television, um, and that therefore they would incorporate understudies into rehearsal, uh, into um, uh, into the the life of the company from from the from the outset. And she said it has had benefits that they had foreseen, and 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 also sort of intangible um, benefits among the company as well. So uh, here's to understudies. Thanks for inviting me. My <laughs> second draft. <laughs> no, wait, there's, there's more. more. There's more. Uh, my second draft is prompted in a way by the um, recent New York Times article by Salma Hayek, which I know many of our listeners uh, will have read. It's a very difficult article to read um, about uh, the sexual harassment that she faced from Harvey Weinstein. And in the, in the article, she tells a story about her efforts to get the film Frida made and ultimately her um, Harvey Weinstein's demand that in order to get the film completed, she perform a sex scene uh, with another woman and, and with nudity and how difficult an experience this was for her, but also how at that point in the production she felt the weight of so many other people's careers and generosity and, um, and, and so went ahead. Uh, and, and so this recalled a conversation that I had, I think many of us uh, men and women have been having these conversations uh, in the wake of the revelation of so many sexual harassment uh, cases with Megan Shea uh, at ASTR, colleague and friend, and she's um, allowed me to recount our conversation uh, for my draft, which is uh, we were discussing uh, the scenario of being an actor um, and being a woman actor who is asked to sexualize a scene in a situation where that may not be called for in any way by the script, but is, um, but is desired by the director uh, in that moment. And what are the options available to actors uh, in, this, in this circumstance? Um, and I think this is something that's particularly exacerbated when we have faculty directors and student actors, but one can imagine it in reading the Hayek piece, we know it happens in all kinds of situations. Um, and so um, I appreciated our conversation so much because she shared with me some of her strategies for uh, kind of jamming these requests. And for the most part, this involves performing very badly and sort of uh, trying, you know, uh, appearing to accede to the request, but doing so in such a way that the scene just would not work um, again and again until a director is ultimately frustrated and says, never mind, just do it the way that you were doing it before. Um, and so I offer this here, um, you know, not to say that... Um, this is where we should now focus all of our conversations about sexual harassment um, 
in theater, in the academy, away from the perpetrators um, and um, their alleged crimes, but also to think about the kinds of theatrical self-defense strategies um, that have been employed uh, over the years and um, whether or not that's something we should be talking about uh, in more formal ways instead of... uh, you know, uh, these these sort of whispered sidebar conversations at conferences or um, in our acting classes or other scenarios at our university. So theatrical self-defense. I think that's a great idea. I love that. So for my draft, I have been looking at the history of performance studies. I'm writing a book on social theory and performance. I'm trying to look at the moments when performance studies and performance theory come to be a kind of recognizable tradition and what the intellectual moves are that get us to the contemporary moment and what they have to do with sociology and social theory. But um, partly because I'm working on that, partly because I'm teaching a seminar in performance theory next semester, I decided to throw the search terms or the terms uh, performance theory and dramatic theory into a Google ingram um, and see what came out. Um, And I'll say this as I'll just give a bit of a, you know, uh, caveat about this. I I think you have to be careful about any sort of conclusions that you draw from um, Google Ingrams. They're not sur- they're not surveying all books. It's hard to know precisely what you're seeing when you look at the increases or decreases in frequency of terms over time. But what's interesting about that is when you look at those two graphs together, it is right in the early 70s that you see a change. For the 20th century up to the early 1970s, dramatic theory is a term that increase, that occurs with increasing frequency in the Google database of, of printed works. And then in the early 70s, it starts to go down and goes down rather precipitously to the present moment. And perhaps not surprisingly, though I was surprised that it was so symmetrical, the term performance theory or the phrase performance theory right at the same time goes from being a very low, low occurring term and then in the early 1970s starts to climb up um, and they cross, I think, right around the late 90s. So that as of the late 90s, the term performance theory occurs more frequently in printed works um, surveyed by Google or scanned by Google than does the term dramatic theory. So it's a great draft because I don't really have conclusions to draw from that <laughs> or a thesis argument. I'm just saying that's an interesting Think about phenomenon. this. Yeah. What is that part of your uh, your essay for the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism? No, that was another draft that I was thinking about. That that essay is about um, the object categorical concept of the event. I argue that both thanks to uh, Richard Schechner's early work on performance theory and the sort of general category of performance, and actually thanks to some trends in theater historiography, which decenter the text and talk about the um, fully represented theatrical performance, that actually one of the things that unifies the field is that whether or not we know it, we think of events as being the things that performance studies scholars and theater studies scholars look at. But yeah, well, maybe when that special section edited by Eero Lane in the JDTC comes out next year, we can talk about our contributions. It's on dramatic theory. Now I feel like so. we need to give Sarah an opportunity to do a second draft because we've both done two. No, no, that's, I think, <laughs> I think we're... It's the season of excess. 
No, I think we're good. <laughs> I, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah. This may be an extra long episode, but well, I, I, for one, don't lament that at all. Um, uh, Paige, it's been wonderful to have you in the podcast huddle. Thank you so much for, for subbing in for Harvey. Thanks um, for having me. It was fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Sarah, great to see you and, and happy holidays. And Yeah, warm winter wishes to, uh, to everyone. Thank Take you. Take care, Sarah. Thanks. Bye, panel. Bye-bye. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.